This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create positive change in the world every day by being a conscious consumer. I'm your host, Laura Alexander Wittig, founder of Brightly.eco, and I started this podcast a few years ago because I wanted a place to talk about the gray areas around sustainability and how being a conscious consumer can be challenging and confusing but it's totally doable. So join me in the name of reducing waste and living positively in the name of the planet. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Bee species are being threatened by multiple factors, from pesticide use to habitat loss. That's why we all need to do our part to help save the bees. This week, we're resharing an important past episode with Jonathan Powell, a trustee at Natural Beekeeping Trust and a beekeeper himself. In it, you're going to learn about how bees play a vital role in our environment, what a natural beekeeper quote-unquote is, and how we can all play an important role in the survival of bees. Hi, Good Together listeners. We are so excited to talk about all things bee-related today on the episode. So um, we know that hashtag Save the Bees was once upon a time a trendy movement on social media, but since then, we've all really experienced a larger call to action for the protection and preservation of honeybees. So the reason why this is important is because honeybees, both wild and domestic, actually perform about 80% of all pollination worldwide. So you can imagine that the effects of um, you know climate change and other things on our bee populations definitely have an effect on the rest of the world. So that's why I'm excited to talk today with Jonathan Powell. He's a trustee at Natural Beekeeper Trust, and he's a natural beekeeper himself. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the vital role that bees play in the environment. So welcome, Jonathan. How are you doing today? Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great honor to be here. Wonderful. Thanks so much. So I wonder if you can get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself um, and the Natural Beekeeping Trust. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, my beekeeping roots, I guess, go back to 1920s. I'm not that old. It's just that my grandfather started beekeeping then. Wonderful. He actually won, <laughs> he actually won a World Cup for um, honey quality 
um, in, a, in the UK. So, wow. um, and he taught me as a child how to keep bees. And certainly as a sort of like a, a little 10 year old, I was keeping bees and producing honey and selling that honey. And so that's really how I got into bees is just through my grandfather and his expert knowledge. Um, the Natural Beekeeping Trust um, is something I came to maybe about about 10 years ago, um, worried about the decline of bees, like most people, realizing there was a serious problem with bees called uh, Varroa mite, which um, is a little mite that has decimated bees across the world. And I was looking for different ways of looking after bees that didn't require all the chemical preparations, acid washes and pesticides put into the hive to control the mites. So I came across something called natural beekeeping, which is a way of keeping bees that follows the natural biology of the bees. And this led me into an extraordinary 180 degree view of how bees live, how we should look after them. And I guess at the moment, my real big interest is actually is wild free living bees because they live very differently to the bees lived in boxes. And I think the more that we understand how bees would live without humans, we need to understand that first before That's we start thinking about how to keep bees. Absolutely. I mean, so you're right. I think when a lot of people think about, you know, just how humans interact with bees, the first thing that they think of, of course, is beekeeping. But you're right. I mean, obviously, with that figure I, I threw out earlier, about 80% of pollination, that can't, you know, be accomplished with just a, a small hive, right? It's it's gonna we're talking about a larger impact here. So that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, honeybees themselves aren't currently listed as endangered, but we are seeing environmental threats like habitat and biodiversity loss, climate change, etc. These things are not forecasting a great future for bees. So I wonder if you can kind of set the stage for the problem that's going on. I and mean, you can talk potentially a little bit more about the mites that you mentioned and like kind of set the stage for, for why it's really important that we address what's going on with bees right now. Well, like, like you say, the bees are important. Honeybees are important for pollination. But you've got to remember there's a lot of other types of bees out there which are just as important for pollination as well. So um, let, let's not forget that those other types of bees, solitary bees, uh, there's over, two, over 2,000 species of them, those are just as important as well. So, um, so they're important for our food sources. Obviously, without the pollination, we don't, we don't get the food. Um, I think uh, you gave a figure in one of your podcasts of something like 40% of the bees in the US um, died um, over just the one, one winter time. So that like, sounds like a staggering figure. Um, to put that in perspective, I'd normally expect about a 10 or 15% loss. And here in Europe, mm. we might see slightly higher, maybe around about 20%. But um, in the USA, something extraordinary is going on to lose 40%. Um, in, in many ways, beekeepers can replace those losses. They do things called splits, um, and they do all sorts of other manipulations. So a split is just like it says, split a hive in two. Mm -hmm. uh, they might even split a hive in two twice during the year. Okay. But it's, it's, um, these fixes are really damaging the genetics of the bees. And um, I think 
the problem we've got is not only the climate change, not only the, the industrial agriculture, which gives no biodiversity for the bees. We've also got um, industrial beekeeping on a vast scale, which is, I think, causing this major, major loss in the bees. So you have about 2,000 commercial beekeepers in the states that's with over 300 hives and they they collectively they operate two million hives okay and that's 60 percent of the honey is produced by those commercial beekeepers of those two million hives 1.4 million of them are put on semi trucks and hauled all around the usa primarily to california in february and march for the almond crops so that's 75 percent of the bees are being put into trucks you know, just just to be, do that. Once wow. the almond's gone, there's no food. So then they're trucked to the cherries. Once that's gone, they go to the apples. Once that's gone, they go to the cranberries. If you can, I mean, I could just give you a quick list of how a natural bee would live. And then you could like compare what a, a normal bee would expect to, to what they're, they're having. If, if you Yeah, like to hear for that, sure. I mean, for me, one of the interesting things was I actually had no idea that bees were were more or less being used as a I mean, um, like a, I don't even know what the word would be. They're most like used as like little workers <laughs> for well, some of the, you know, industrial farming in the United States. So yeah, I actually norm- didn't normally know Normally workers that. get paid. Normally exactly. You don't, normally you don't take the food out of the workers' mouths no. and feed them sugar syrup in return. <laughs> no, no, exactly. So, no. And so yeah. I, I'm curious. So I'm, I would imagine it was not always like this, right? Um, they didn't need to bring bees into these larger operations is that correct or is it just basically you know maybe back in the day before we had such large-scale industrial farming the natural population could help with pollination is that is that correct and now it's just too large they've got to supplement it or why is that actually happening it's not so much it's just too large that is one problem the second problem is there's no biodiversity so once the bees have to feed all year round so once all yep. the almonds are gone there's no food so you you will have to move them on so our agriculture has changed so much particularly in the states that it's become unsustainable not only for the bees but all other pollinators as well absolutely so if, if you were if you were a bee you would normally live up in a tree about 2 or 4 meters uh, 2 to 4 meters high not on the ground You'd have a very small nest of about 40 litres, not 100 litres that you would get in a commercial hive. The queen would live for four to five years. She wouldn't be killed after a year or two because she wasn't as strong as she was earlier on and replaced. She might swarm or the hive might swarm, i.e. reproduce once a year. And that would be on their own terms when they're ready to swarm. There'd be a really large separation between the hives of about 500 metres at least or one one hive per kilometre square. You wouldn't get stacks of skyscrapers of hives. Mm -hmm. And all the bees would be sons and daughters of the queen or the previous queen. They wouldn't be sort of like artificial packages of bees all thrown together with a queen that had been artificially inseminated and produced in industrial scale. Mm. And the, the genetics of the bees are so sensitive, they actually modify themselves to the local surroundings. So in the UK, in the 1800s, we used to have different I would not call them races of bees, but different flavors of genetics that suited okay. exactly the landscape around them. There's no chance of that if you're tracked all the way across the USA. Yeah. And and they obviously are fed on on honey, which is the perfect food for them. Bees, they take away the honey and they give them sugar. 
and that destroys enzymes in their stomach. It makes them weaker. Um, and a honeybee colony, once it's collected its honey, it sort of like backs off and starts looking after the babies and the hygiene of the hive, like being a really good housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't happen with commercial bees because their honey is taken away. So they're permanently in food insecurity. So the natural processes that I see in a tree do not exist in, in a box hive. Um, so it's kind of like not surprising to me knowing what honeybees want and what they get to hear that you're getting 40% losses. And, and if anything, that will increase unless we learn the sort of like the true biology and the true nature of the bee, which is just so inspiring. It, it just, even now, after all these years, it sort of like sends tingles up the back of my neck when, when I get in close contact with the bees. I love it. Well, no, I mean, that's a great primer for understanding sort of how we've taken a very natural process that's been happening for thousands of years and now try to bend it to what we need it need to. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a bit discouraging to hear, I think how this process is impacting the overall population. And so how does that, how does that cohort of bees sort of the, the commercial bees, how do they coexist alongside our natural bee population, for instance, like, is there, um, you know, you talked a little bit about um, the mite situation that that is affecting yeah. bees around, like, is there any kind of, um, you know, disease that's shared or, you know, how did, do they negatively impact each other? I'm curious about that. Well, when you have such a huge concentration of bees in one place, they don't have this natural separation. So that's the primary defense of bees from spreading disease amongst each other. So in a in the almond crop area, you'll be prophylactically feeding the bees sugar water, um, which would have antibiotics in it. And you'll be covering them with acids to try and burn off the mites and probably Mm. putting in other chemicals and things like that into it. On top of that, you've got the actual pesticides that are put onto the, onto the crops as well. So it's, it's not a, it's not a good picture there. Um, with regards to how they sit with the other pollinators, obviously, if you suddenly put 1.4 million honeybee hives in a very concentrated area, they're going to wipe out all the nectar from all the other pollinators. Mm. So that's just a fact. Is yeah. that if there's a limited amount of food and there's quite a lot of studies going into this now is what is the impact of beehives on other pollinators I think the natural bees, they don't have this problem because they've got this really low density. And once they've got the food, they're, they're absolutely fine. Sure. But it's when you're taking away so much nectar. So one could see if we look further into the future, because this is a really hot topic at the moment, is that just as we have like, um, and this might sound a bit way out there, but trust me, this is, this is being raised now. Um, as you have fish quotas in places where there are, depletion of resources yes we could actually see nectar quotas so mm. you wouldn't have the right just to take your beehive to a location or your 100 beehives to a location and just say oh i'm providing a pollination service yeah <laughs> you, you you might actually have to get permits because the impact on other pollinators is going to be so huge well that sounds smart to me i mean so i live in seattle washington and um we know quite a lot of people, my husband included, who enjoy fishing. And yes, I mean, it's highly regulated here, um, mostly because of the impact of, you know, large scale fishing on wildlife populations. You know, we have 
large scale orca whale population. So it makes Mm -hmm. total sense to me that this would be something that could potentially help solve the problem. So I, Hey, I look forward to that day. Um, I wonder, Jonathan, if you could tell us a little bit more about what natural beekeeping means. So we can kind of gather from the earlier points brought up around like, you know, letting the bees exist um, and, and not moving them around like little worker bees truly across the United States. But what are some other tenets of natural beekeeping, um, you know, that you'd like to share with the audience? I think um, there isn't a very strong, clear definition of it, but you could simply sum it up is that the natural beekeeper, I would expect a natural beekeeper to understand the true natural biology of the bee and in their beekeeping, try and respect that natural biology as much as possible. So, for example, a really clear one would be swarming. That is how bees reproduce. Um, uh, A commercial beekeeper may cut the wings, or not even commercial beekeepers, even hobbyist beekeepers may cut the wings of the queen so she can't fly out with the swarm, and they would be total control of the swarming process. A natural beekeeper would allow the bees to swarm and um, provide them a home that they could either fly into directly or catch the swarm and and put them into a hive. So all throughout um, natural beekeeping, you would have a critical eye on what you were doing and you'd be taking it from the point of view of the bee and you would, ha- you would be developing a deep consciousness about what the natural biology of the bee is. That's fascinating. Um, so it makes total sense why something like this would be much more preferred than the, the other version. Um, you talked also a little bit about harvesting honey. And I think one misconception I think we most likely have here in the States is one of the main drivers for beekeeping is to harvest honey, right? Which sounds like there's lots of different drivers for beekeeping, but, you know, I think sometimes people don't really understand what, what harvesting honey means and what the impacts on the environment actually are. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that too. There's two two sources of food the bees have. One is honey, which is their carbohydrate and that's their energy source. And the other one is the pollen, which is the protein which they feed to the baby baby bees. Um, the the impact of honey harvesting on the bees is basically you are taking away the food away from an animal. Mm-hmm. And so if you take away their food, they will starve unless you replace it. Or if you only take a small amount, then maybe they might have a bit of excess. But that excess is disappearing each each year. So if you take away food away from bees, you're, they will starve unless you feed them. Um, beekeepers often feed them um, syrup um, mm. back in as replacement. Uh, the impact on the other pollinators is obviously if you're taking uh, a honeybee hive can get through maybe three, uh, 600 um, kilograms of nectar a year, about, which make about 300 kilograms of honey, of which they'll need 200 for running the hive. And maybe, you know, so we're talking large numbers, but that's only for commercial hives. That is a huge, huge quantity of honey taken every year. Um, one thing to notice about um, natural bees is that 
or free living bees is they will consume 10 times less honey than a commercial hive. Hmm. And why is that? That's because they live in highly insulated um, trees. A tree has t- five times the thermal performance of a box on the ground. Okay. And it has, um, it has a huge thermal mass, which evens out the night and day temperatures. Um, if beekeepers started insulating their hives quite a bit more not only would the bees be happier so would all other pollinators be happy because the bees would need we're literally throwing away so much nectar energy just by having poorly insulated hives Fascinating. Um, it's just it's just like living in a house with no insulation yeah you're just throwing away the energy and that energy is having an impact on our earth and when you are throwing away honey just to keep the shivering bees warm you're having an impact on all other pollinators with your wastefulness. So um, it's really impossible to separate the physical structure of the hive away from the biology of the bee. The, the comb is an integral part of the bee. It's like a super, super organism. You can almost think of the comb as like the womb um, where the baby bees grow and there's heat all around and nest and warmth around it. And the physical characteristics of how the bees operate and manage the hives they form beautiful patterns of feedback which are just so delicate and so careful that when you see someone just rip open a hive take off boxes of honey put in queen excluders and things like this you suddenly realize oh my gosh we're totally abusing mm. this this insect and um i guess that's uh, for the re- for your for your listeners that's why i really don't i don't buy honey anymore um If I do get honey, it comes from maybe a hive that has died, and so I will get my honey that way. But for me, uh, we talked about the inspiration of bees. It's not just the honey. It is how they live their lives in this world. They're such an inspiration, and they they can really teach us a lot about being true green consumers. Exactly. So it sounds like, you know, there are ways that we can you know, more responsibly harvest honey. Um, So it's not all completely bad news, but it sounds to me like, you know, these steps aren't necessarily being taken. And so, yes, listeners, if you are, you know, an avid consumer of honey and you want to continue to do that in a way that you find to be ethical, highly recommend working with a small a small operation, talk to them, go to a farmer's market, like ask how they're actually doing this because it sounds to me that, you know, even people with good intentions could potentially be doing it wrong. And that actually leads me to my next question because, you know, especially here in the States, and I, I know it's been happening across Europe too, like there's been this movement of people that want to have their own sort of backyard cottage yeah. industries, right? So you hear about yeah. people with chickens. That's very big here in the Pacific Northwest. People have chickens all over the place. Um, and in general, we've heard more and more people are trying to get into beekeeping at home. And so one big question I had for you was like, should we be encouraging this behavior? Like people might think that they're doing good, but potentially could have negative impacts. So is this something that's good? Um, and sort of regardless, like, is there a way to go about doing this new hobby responsibly? Or are we better off just donating to an organization that, you know, more responsibly um, handles bees? 
Yeah, it's a really good question and it's not an easy one to answer. Um, yeah. Definitely, I see places in Germany, particularly cities where there's been big movements to sort of like do this backyard beekeeping. And it's been basically a disaster for the bees and also for all the other pollinators. And the mm. reason that is, is there's just too many there and the food is all being sucked away. And whereas a honeybee, um, you can feed them yourself as a beekeeper to keep them alive. None of the other pollinators have that actual luxury. So this year I was talking to some friends in Germany and they said they were feeding their bees in May. And, and for a beekeeper, that's really shocking because that's when the bees should be gathering ample, so much food that they have enough to see them through the wintertime. To think that they're actually feeding them in the summer is really bad. So... Mm. First of all, check, and the States is a huge place, so I don't want to generalize. You've got so many different uh, climate zones and, and places of biodiversity. Um, first of all, check, is the density of, two, of the bees here too high? If it is, then adding more bees um, or doing backyard beekeeping doesn't save the bee, it actually harms the bee. If there is places where there is lots of food for the bees, then yeah, by all means, you can do backyard beekeeping. Um, I like to just encourage people just to put up what I would call like a log hive in a tree, okay. scent it in a particular way, and just watch the bees, a swarm of bees, find it and fly in. They'll be so inspired just by seeing that process. It's incredible. Um, and and then, tell us yes, what, more yeah. about this log hive. What is that? It's interesting. Well, we're trying the reason, um, particularly in Europe um, and in many other places, a lot of trees have just been cut down. And mm -hmm. what we find is you need a tree of about 500 to 1,000 years of age, you know, like an oak tree with very perfect cavities for the bees to live in. So we don't have so many of those. A lot of were cut down in the war over here in Europe. Yep. So what a lot of people are doing is they are taking logs, they're hollowing them out, they're making them the perfect dimensions for the bees with the perfect hole size. They're putting them in the perfect size in the tree. And the bees, they have a voting system when they're finding a new home. And when there's an 80% consensus amongst the scout bees for finding a new home, they will take the bees and and guide them off, often across large distances and fly straight into that log hive mm -hmm. in a tree. So in, a, in the UK, I've got a friend who's put up 300 of these across the UK, 80% of those filled within two weeks with bees. So in oh the UK, goodness. we have a strong population of bees. So there's a really positive story coming through there. We've got something special going on in the UK. Our friend Mick in Ireland, he's doing a similar thing. He's got 300 square miles. He's putting up one log hive per kilometer square. And what these people are doing is that they are allowing the bees to be bees to get their natural genetics back in check again because they've been so battered after so many years. And this natural backbone of just free living bees able to rule their own relationships with the environment, they are strengthening the genetic backbone of all bees. And yeah, by all means, you can do the same in your own garden. So in my garden, I've got a 40 meter, 30 meter square garden with a house in the middle of it. And um, I made a log hive out of old discarded pallets. I wrote yeah. a little book about it. And I put that up in a fir tree in my back garden and bees filled that log, that log hive or pallet hive just within five days. Um, wow. And they just live there. And sometimes I just go and stand underneath the hive and just watch them because they're great for meditation, bees. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And I so the reason why I asked is I think this is a really interesting way for people to potentially get involved with bees rather than having to commit to 
managing a hive and being responsible stewards of them, et cetera. I think most people struggle with keeping houseplants alive. <laughs> so yeah. to take to take on such a responsibility and, you know, with the full impact of understanding that, you know, your hive is going to have an impact on the environment around you, whether you're talking about taking resources or altering the genetic uh, makeup of the area, like it's a very big deal. So my thought is like, hey, if if people really want to be interested in this this hobby, if you will, let's just kind of help the existing ones, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's a beautiful lesson we can learn from the bees. It's it's a reciprocity, uh, which is just like just the give and take. So when bees are industrious, I, they go out, they pollinate flowers. The more industrious they are, the more flowers are pollinated and the better and greener our planet gets. What a wonderful lesson for us. You know, how many industries do we have in the world where the, the more we grow, the, the, the bigger we get the industry, the better the environment gets? And the key to all of this is that before we take, before we buy that honey from the supermarket, think about what are we giving or what are we what have we given? So if you've got a small backyard, why not plant a cherry tree in the small backyard? A cherry tree produces 10 times more nectar than an apple tree, for example. Hmm. That's wonderful for all pollinators. And why don't you plant that tree with your child and make a, tell them stories underneath that tree? If we can get that love of nature and the environment into our garden and into our children and into our own hearts, then we're definitely going to have a better and brighter and happier future. So there are things that we can do which uh, not only help the bees, but they also help ourselves. It's this, if we can get that giving going first, then maybe we can look about that sort of like, that, that I need to live off of the land, I need food. We can look at that taking element. But at the moment, it's clearly that we've swayed too much to taking yes. and not enough to giving. Absolutely. Well, I totally agree. And that was going to be obviously my next question, which is, how consumers and people can get involved in general. So that's a great tip. Do you have any more tips on specific plants or trees that people can plant that are, are bee friendly? We, I mean, obviously it's very much going to vary based on where the, where the person is living, but I love that cherry tree thought. That's a, that's a great one. Yeah, well, cherry trees make the place more beautiful. And, and I think also in the States, there's quite a, a big thing about green lawns, isn't, mm. isn't there? You think of the green lawns, those provide no food for, for no insects at all. Yep. Um, we've got a trend over in Europe whereby, and this might horrify some listeners, where they don't cut the grass in the parks anymore. What they will do is they will cut pathways through the parks and they make wildflower meadows oh, in the parks. Yeah. And, and the side verges of the roads, will, people will be um, cutting them less frequently and allowing more plants to grow. So wildness is very important. Think about that lawn. Think about... Um, can we introduce more flowers into the into the garden? Be very careful about where you buy your plants. I think you've touched upon this in previous uh, podcasts. Quite a lot of plants from nurseries say they're bee friendly, but they've been treated with neonicotinoids, which mm. are very harmful for bees. So yep. don't support and you know ask as a consumer always ask questions about the thing that you're buying, which I think is a message you're always banging banging home to people. Um, and the other thing as well is that I don't really think that we should be thinking so much about the greenness of the products that we 
buy, I think we should be looking more at the ethics of what we are buying. So the difference is, is just that think more deeply about the impact on others and what it takes to produce this product. Let's take um, Manuka Honey for an example. Can you imagine the industry that is required to produce enough Manuka Honey so it fills all the all the shelves of all the health stores of all the world. (laughs) That is just like, it's just like an incredible industry, which is so alien to Well, it's so so strange, right? Because I remember when Manuka honey was still very hard to find. Um, You know, it was literally the only Manuka honey you could get was from New Zealand. And it seemed like very, I don't know, like small cottage industry. And then I think just a year or two ago, I saw it being sold at Costco and I was like, wow, I cannot believe they have Manuka honey here. Right. And of course the price has been driven down because of the supply. And I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I I totally agree with you on that one. Well, I think the other thing about don't also don't underestimate local honey because, um, yes, in the UK, they were doing some tests on some local honey in Wales, and they found it had the same properties, and if 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 not matched, the the Manuka honey. Uh, interestingly, this came from a hive of a natural beekeeper. When he extracted or when he took his honey, it was mixed up with pollen and all sorts of other hive elements as well. So it's what we would call a sort of like a raw honey. Mm. But um, I don't think, um, you know, when I say look at the ethics of something, if something can be produced locally, then why ship it all the way across the world? Mm-hmm. I think we need to be a little bit more critical of do I really need this particular taste from this particular product when I can have something different here. There's nothing wrong with not being able to get Manuka honey. There's nothing wrong with it. You yeah. know, just just enjoy the local produce. If we when we're talking about these almond crops, the only solution to that is more biodiversity and more people buying locally. And when they're buying more locally, then they are also buying a greater variety of crops and you've got more biodiversity. So you were talking about planting for bees. Bees need food all year round. And if we can get that biodiversity, so if we can get the willows and the sort of like for the early food and protein for the bees and then we might have some crops that the bees could pollinate and then if we could have some food like um, blackberries for example for the later part of the year and if we didn't cut down the ivy that grew up in the trees which is like a vital source of winter honey for the bees if we were just a little bit more appreciating of the wildness i think that would go a long way to improving this world I totally agree with you, Jonathan. And I like that we are able to tie it back to, you know, the thought of conscious consumerism at the end, right? Because, of course, we all know that consuming less is good for the planet as well. But what I think are the point of this podcast and the point of really what we try and accomplish at our larger organization, Brightly, is to help consumers feel empowered to create change with that purchasing power, right? Like, you know, when you choose to buy locally, there's all these downstream impacts like you just mentioned, but you're also telling the company that produces all these almonds like, hey, there's not as much demand for this anymore. Maybe I need to slow down a little bit. And so I think just in general, listeners, um, we hope that this episode was 
was informative. I learned a ton. Um, Jonathan learned we already had an episode sort of about birds and bees, but we did not get into it this much. So that's why we wanted an expert here. So um, yes, it was just so wonderful talking with you. And so if our listeners want to learn more about sort of your work um, in the Natural Beekeeping Trust, are there any resources that you recommend um, sending along? And of course, we'll, we'll link to these in the show notes as well. Yeah, well, I hope I didn't give too much downer, but it's all about giving consumers the understanding of what is going on. And if you want more understanding, and we do look at the really positive side of things as well, do visit, do look up on Google Natural Beekeeping Trust, and you will find us. And we also have a Facebook page there as well and on Twitter. And for those who are interested in the more um, sort of like wilder bees, we I have just recently created a freelivingbees.com website Wonderful. where you can see bees living in trees. There's lots of entries from the USA. And if anyone spots a wild colony, send a, send a picture to that website. You can upload it and we'll celebrate these free living bees together. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. Really enjoyed it. Okay. It's been a pleasure. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social media. You'll find us on almost everything at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.